Well, it was while I was an undergraduate here that uh, Mick Jagger created the song, which he didn't so much as sing as scream. He can't get no satisfaction. It's a song that uh, captured the frustration of that generation and I think it still captures the generations to this day. Can't get no satisfaction, not in the commercial TV advertising, radio advertising, not in celebrity world, not in sexual satisfaction, the sexual freedoms that you had. It screams out the dissatisfaction with the world, the dissatisfaction with his life, that restless unhappiness expressed in materialism and hedonism. The topic you can see and what I'm going to be saying is actually on this little sheet which has a couple of Bible readings and a prayer on it as well and you'll see that the uh, points I'm going to make are three. One, I'm going to talk about longing. Secondly, about the search for meaning. And then thirdly, about the game changer. So let me clarify by what I mean about longing to start with because words can mean whatever you want them to mean, of course. But what I'm talking about is that profound desire, that wish, that, that feeling, that hope for something that we don't have now. Longing is an expression of dissatisfaction with the present and the desire for a different, for a better future. It can be something where we're going to get in the coming days, like graduation, possibly, or it can be something that we're never going to get, something that's impossible to attain, like our beauty pageant's desire for world peace or the nostalgia of returning to a simpler, easier lifestyle, a nostalgia for our childhood or a nostalgia for our family before it was split by death or before it was split by divorce. You can't actually get it back. You can long for it, you can desire it, you can hope for it, but it's actually not possible. Now, I'm not entering into the psychology or the physiology or the neurological psychology of desire and longing. It's a whole other topic. But the more simple fact that for many people in our society, there's a delete malaise of longing for something. Longing for something different, longing for something better, something not as corrupt as we are at the present in our community or as we are within our own selves. And this happens strangely at a time when the society has unprecedented wealth and health and freedom. See, we as Australians have the second highest median income in the world. We also have the second highest life expectancy in the world. And we have personal freedoms and democratic freedoms in this land that the Enlightenment dream was hoping for of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. What they longed for 200 years ago, we just take for granted. It's all here. And yet, so many of our peers, so many of our fellow citizens are longing for something else, are longing for something more a longing for something different, something better. So why? Why do we feel this longing? I mean, sometimes it's just the simple, unrealistic nature of our aspirations. Uh, we've been raised, indoctrinated in home and school with awful nonsense. You can achieve whatever you want. You can have it all, and then by 30. You can all be prime minister one day. Uh, all you have to do is fulfil your potential. It's yours for the take. It's a load of rubbish. 
sometimes the problems are that we have unsatisfying aspirations. We've been socialised to hope and to work and to plan for the pursuit of pleasure. But of course the pursuit of pleasure is never achieved, or if you pursue it, you don't get it. Pleasure comes as a byproduct of right living, not as the goal of living itself. The more you pursue pleasure, the more it will escape you. Or the keeping up with the Joneses, competing and comparing ourselves to our neighbours, which only leads to jealousy and envy and rivalry and disappointment. Or the nonsense of materialistic acquisition, that only if I had the latest mobile, you know, the, 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 the fastest computer, the best car, the new pair of shoes, the boat, the car, the house, the dog, the, then life would be sweet, then it would be fulfilled, then it'd be satisfied, but of course, it's, again, a nonsense. They say that the best two days of a man's life are the day he buys his first boat and the day he sells his first boat. And for those of us who can't possibly afford any of these things because we have just been oppressed by our forefathers, the stupidity comes of the bucket list of experiences. There's the alternative. I can't afford a Sydney house. I'll have experiences instead. Photographed, of course even if it's a selfie, because there's no one there to share it with. And I've got to go and see the Taj Mahal. Look, I took a photo of it to prove that I've been there and to remember what it looks like. Go buy a photo, download one or forget. It'll at least be cheaper, better, and there's a good chance of being in focus. <laughs> this longing for a better world is not helped by false diagnosis and false remedies of the problem. They actually only make it worse. See, one line of reasoning is the denial of the material universe altogether. It's your attachment to things that causes your suffering. Therefore, do not have attachments. Do not love anything and you'll never be disappointed by having it taken from you. Sit down on your mat, free your mind from thought, eat the food you don't like in very small proportions, and don't make friends, don't fall in love, seek the ultimate path to nothingness, and at least you won't suffer. Another line of reasoning, of course, is the denial of the spiritual universe, the Epicurean ideal of creating ataraxia, uh, the, the untroubled life, by calculating the amount of pain that each pleasure gives and to make sure you don't have so much pleasure that your pain increases and seeking to have the untroubled life of mortality and death. This materialistic fatalism, the idea that there is no good, there is no evil, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's just one event after another, heading ultimately, of course, to entropy, which fortunately is not going to happen in our lifetime, though if it did, it wouldn't matter, because nothing matters in a materialistic world. Or we can go the moralist line, working harder to make a better life. Get into parliament. Get into the boardrooms of corporate business. Get into power. Whatever power structures are available, the power structures of the university, the power structures of society, be a progressive person who's going to make a difference Bring about change for the idealism of a better, more caring, loving, equitable society. A life where no longer will we long for anything. No longer will we long for something because we have it all. We all have it all. 
whatever it is we're supposed to have that the progressives are going to give to us. When we get there, we'll recognise it, although we pretty well all have it all now and are unsatisfied. Longing is an indication of meaning, values, significance. We think there is something wrong, we think there is something better, which is why we search for meaning. So let's turn to humans' search for meaning for a few moments. So this lies at the base of longing for something else. What is my life about? What is life about? Especially my life. For an atheistic materialist like Richard Dawkins, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and consequently, there's no reality to morality. Morality is a figment of your distorted mind. His famous statement is, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Most people find this really unsatisfactory and unsatisfying. So, for example, the French atheist philosopher Luc Ferry wrote a little book, very helpful little book, called A Brief History of Thought. He argues against what he calls the materialism's biological imprisonment, uh, reflected in a Dawkins kind of view of the world. And he says he doesn't want to live in the self-contradiction of meaningless, valueless existence. He calls that whole philosophy of just sheer materialism unthinkable. He says it's too full of logical contradictions for me to settle down with intellectually. He is an atheist himself. But just sheer materialism, full of logical contradictions. Uh, this conflict between one atheist and another atheist can be actually found in a single atheist like Thomas Nagel, who was a professor at uh, New York University. He wrote a short introduction to philosophy called What Does It All Mean? In it, he concludes, the last chapter is quite interesting, but what's the point of being alive at all, he asks. His answer? There's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all or if I didn't care about anything. And then he goes on, but I do. That's all there is to it. He continues, if life is not real, life is not earnest, and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. And the last line of his book says, life may not be, sorry, life may be not only meaningless, but absurd. When you get to the last line of a book that says that's what the meaning of life is, you kind of wonder why you bought the book on the meaning of life. You kind of wonder why he bothers writing it, because it's absurd. That may be the case, but let me take you back 3,000 years to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and read the poem in the handout that's there. Ecclesiastes 3, it says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, 
A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain is the work under his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This little poem and the reflection at the end of it is an important point of progress in the book of Ecclesiastes. See, the book opens with a very famous line, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. For in this world, nothing has meaning, nothing has substance, he says. It's all just nothingness, empty, vacuous, like a puff of wind of no consequence. For this world has nothing of any substance or meaning. It's just the cycle, cycle after cycle. The world goes round and round and round the sun. It goes and back and round. and It doesn't actually go anywhere. It never arrives anywhere. The water comes down in the rain and it flows out to the sea to be sucked up into the clouds to come back and drop down. It never actually goes anywhere. You're born in order to reproduce, in order to die, that your children may reproduce, that you die, that life goes nowhere. He writes, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. For him, there's nothing new under the sun. And as you read this book of the Bible, you can find all the modern longings and dissatisfactions which prove his point that there is nothing new under the sun. Because the writings of much of late 20th century poetry and, uh, and uh, the disillusionment of, uh, of plays of Beckett and Pinter and those kinds of... It's all there in Ecclesiastes 3,000 years ago who said there's nothing new under the sun. And they demonstrated it. And so it goes on search of meaning in the rest of chapters 1 and 2 by applying his mind and his wealth to wisdom and its acquisition, and the acquisition of, of things, of pleasures of any kind and buildings and all the delights of the work of his hands. And his conclusion at the end of chapter 2 is still the same, vanity of vanities, it's all meaningless. In particular, and especially because of death. For death makes a mockery of all that we do in life. The wise man and the fool... They both die. There's no difference. Death makes everything and all life's efforts meaningless. You get your degree. You get your next degree. You get your next degree. You've got more letters after your name than there are in your name. <laughs> and when you die, you're just given a little plaque or your relatives are that big. And they can't put all the different things that you did, this there in this little plaque. But it doesn't matter because within a generation, nobody's going to read it. Nobody cares. 
you're just one plaque in a wall full of plaques where people have... And if you did nothing, you'd still get a little plaque in the same wall. What's the point of it? What's the, what's the meaning of it all? You get the same idea in modern philosophy. Jean-Paul Sartre was an atheist, communist, pro-pedophile, uh, existentialist, French uh, writer of the uh, middle of the 20th century. He wrote, it's meaningless we are born, it's meaningless that we die. Another famous quote of his, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness and dies by chance. <laughs> Death makes everything meaningless. But then comes the breakthrough of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes. The breakthrough that he finds is timing. It's a funny one. But it's the timeliness of things that shows that there is a meaning. That there is purpose. There are values. There are virtues. It's not caught in the action itself, but in the timing of the action. For there is a time for one action... And then there is another time for the opposite action. The action is not meaningful, but the timing of the action is meaningful. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. There's a time to love. There's a time to hate. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. Our sense of timing indicates that there is a meaning to life's choices. A sense that a, a good action at a different time, would be a bad action. The sense that there is a right and there is a wrong. And so he looks again at the business that God has put into our hands and draws his conclusion in verse 11 that's there, little number 11. He has made everything beautiful, but see how he's made it beautiful? In its time. The things itself, not beautiful, but the right time, anything can be beautiful. There is beauty in everything, but it's not in itself. It's found outside of the thing. It's found in a transcendence of the thing. Beyond or above the range of normal physical experience is this word transcendence. It's, it's not just the thing. It's the meaning that lies outside the thing, that is given to the thing that is happening. That atheist Luke Ferry, the Frenchman I mentioned, appeals to transcendence when he recounts the horror of Srebrenica uh, massacre in 1995 in the Bosnia-Serbian war where men were, and women were, were tortured to death in a most appalling way. And, and Luke Ferry says, I'm not saying that we need transcendence of being free agents or the transcendence of values. I'm saying that we cannot dispense with them, which is quite a different matter that we cannot think about ourselves or our relation to values without, post, without positing the hypothesis of transcendence. It's a logical necessity, a rational constraint, not an aspiration or a desire. What is being debated here is not a matter of our comfort, but our relation to truth. But, of course, transcendence opens up the idea and the possibility of God. And atheists, even Luke Ferry, can't stand the idea 
of reintroducing God into the subject of truth. Thomas Nagel wrote another book around 2000 called The Last Word. And in that he wrote, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. He goes on, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's a very striking modern professor of philosophy who is honest enough to admit that his atheism is not based on fact, rationality or logicality, but upon his wishes. He does not want to be answerable to the transcendent God. He wants to find meaning in the world itself. But when he looks at the world himself, he says, I know it's got meaning, but I think it's absurd. I know I am meaningful, but I think I'm ridiculous. The alternative, I can't stand the idea of God. I don't want God. I won't have God. I'd rather live in absurd ridiculousness than posit the possibility of God. So come back the 3,000 years ago to the philosopher back then in the Bible in our reading of Ecclesiastes, for not only does he show how meaning and values are seen outside the world in some sense of transcendence or what he calls eternity, but he also shows why our longing is so unfulfilled. Look again there at verse 11. He has made, that's God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has given to us all that sense of eternity, that sense of transcendence, that sense that there is meaning, purpose, morality, values, virtues. But God has also given us the frustration of not knowing what eternity is about, of not understanding eternity, not knowing the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning, of not knowing what God has done. He's given us the sense that the world has meaning, but hasn't told us what the meaning is, which is pretty much where you find humans. We all have this sense. As soon as you say, oh, that's good, you have moved out of the Dawkins materialism into the world of meaning. doesn't matter what it is that you're saying. Right? It's good that people give up smoking. Whatever it is. It's bad that people practice pedophilia. Whatever it is that you say, as soon as you give a judgment, you've moved to some sense of transcendence beyond this material world. And what is the basis of it? Where does your feeling come from? Is it nothing other than stupidity? the disordering of your grey matter in your head? Or is there something that lies beyond it? The Bible makes sense of it. It says God has given it to us, but he hasn't given us the whole answer. Here's why we're left in such unsatisfactory longing. We want a better world, a better life. We know there is more to life than just 
eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's just not good enough. But we don't know what it is. And worse, we can't find out what it is either. Our longing indicates our belief in meaning, but our search for meaning is always frustrated. For it's God's will that we will not be able to find the answer on our own. Death will always mock our every effort. Generations come, generations go, nothing really changes, nothing really satisfies. The best we have in life, like love, is destroyed by death. Death conquers all. But with the coming of Jesus, there is the game changer. Point three, I'm getting there. For a thousand years, the Jews look forward to the coming of a king, the Messiah, as they called it in Hebrew, or the Christ. They were living under one level of conquest after another, the Jewish nation. The Assyrians beat them up and destroyed most of them. Then the Babylonians took them off to slavery. Then the Greeks, the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. They were always being beaten up, destroyed, conquered and occupied. So they were longing for the day when God would fulfill his promise to them that sent the Christ who would conquer all their enemies and set up the golden age that would last forever, the kingdom of God. So we read from the Gospel of Mark when Jesus' disciples finally recognised Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. It's that reading from Mark 8. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. But to their surprise and to their amazement, their astonishment, he began to teach them about himself. He called himself the Son of Man. No one else called him that. That's a long story. You can ask me later if you want to know about the Son of Man. So how Jesus talked about himself. And he says that he's going to be rejected and killed. That's number 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This could not be further from their expectations of the Christ. They're looking for the king who's going to conquer them, going to free them from their enemies, going to rule forever. And here he is. He's the king. They've given up their lives to follow this man. They've recognised that he is the king. He's coming to rule the world forever. And now he tells us that he's going to be executed. Now he tells us that the coming coronation is not a coronation. It's going to be an assassination. They had the right title, the right name, the Christ, but they had the wrong product, the wrong Christ. For he didn't come to conquer Israel's enemy, Rome, And he didn't come to establish Israel's kingdom. No, he came to conquer humanity's enemy, death. And he came to rise again and establish God's kingdom. You see it here in verse 31, and after three days to rise again. He said it clearly. He said it explicitly. Why didn't they hear it? Well, Hindsight's easy for us, isn't it? You look back and say, why, you know, if I was there, I would have understood what he's saying. Rubbish. Of course you wouldn't. There's no way you would have. Why wouldn't you? You don't expect dead men to rise from the dead. That's the first thing. They didn't expect dead. Dead men, they dead. So he says, I'm going to be killed. You're not hearing that last little bit and rise again three days later. 
But more than that, within Israel, their understanding of rise again is a way of saying go to heaven. Right? It's a long story. I can explain it, but we haven't got time at the moment. But that's what it's about. It comes out of Ezekiel 37 and Daniel 12 in the Old Testament. The, the rising again is going to heaven. So that's all they would have heard him say. I'm going to die and go to heaven. They'd say, well, of course you are. You're a good man. You'll go to heaven. That's all right. They don't have a problem with that. They don't expect him to come back out of the grave here and now. That's not what they're expecting. But Jesus meant what he said. He was the game changer. Not for the political state of Israel, although ultimately it changes every state in every part of the world it goes to, but the morals, the mortal state of humanity, that we all die. He was the one who was bringing eternity into reality. For he was not only rising again, but he was also bringing the resurrection to us. And with the resurrection, we find meaning and purpose because death is not the end anymore. We find morality and judgment for it's appointed to every man to die once and after that, the judgment. We find values and virtues that are real and we find our reason for longing and our certainty of finding. And we are born again to a new and eternal life, to a certain hope which answers all our longings. With the resurrection of Jesus Death no longer reigns in this world. With the death of Jesus, corruption no longer reigns in this world. With the death of Jesus, we can be transformed, born again, so that while we live in this world, we are now part of the world to come. The resurrection changes everything. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? It's a subject that is more than worthwhile studying and trying to find out the answers for. Because if he did, the meaning of your longing makes sense and you can find out what it is. And if he didn't, Ecclesiastes is still right. Our life is full of the sense of meaning without any knowledge of what it means. And so we can't get any satisfaction because that's the way we've been made. No satisfaction. What a game changer it is. What a terrific game changer. See down below that I've printed out a prayer in a box. It is the prayer that people pray to become a Christian. You can pray other prayers to become a Christian, but this is a good one to pray about becoming a Christian. It actually has three paragraphs to it. I want to draw your attention to it. You see, the first paragraph is full of the word I. I know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm guilty, I, I need forgiveness. It's all about I. It's about the fact that really, my life is not the way God would have me live. You've got to come to that honesty before you can become a Christian. As long as you think that you're in charge of the world and you're going to make everything right, that you'll still believe the silly things they taught you in high school about you becoming prime minister, well, more fool you. You can't become a Christian. Rich people can't become Christians. Not possible. And arrogant idiots never become Christians. That's just the character of it. Stupid idiots like me become, but arrogant ones don't, you see. But then... Notice the thank you in the second paragraph. 
because what is the change? The change is Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to die that I may be forgiven. I haven't gone into that today. But the corruption of the world is met in the death of Jesus. I'm sure the coming days when you come to the festival meetings and the other ones that are going to be running and you find out about power and money and freedom and acceptance and all the other topics that are going to be dealt with in the next three weeks, this death of Jesus will become clearer and clearer to you. But it's the next bit of the thank you that I draw your attention to do today. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Once you come to understand the resurrection from the dead, you move from death and mortality of this world into the life of eternity while you are in this world and have a certain hope of it for the future. And so the prayer of someone who wants to become a Christian is the last paragraph there. It's one sentence. Please forgive me. I need forgiveness. Jesus died that I be forgiven. Please forgive me. And please change me. I was living in rebellion against God, but you have now opened up the possibility of living a different life, so please change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. I've got it printed there because I figure you can take this little slip of paper home and ponder that prayer yourselves in your own time. And when you see the truth that is there, you might address God in those terms. Let me pray now as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all things that you have given to us. For the fact that you have not left us with no sense, but with that strong sense, that longing for meaning, for justice, for righteousness, for truth, that, that longing for a better life and a better world. We thank you, Father, for that dissatisfaction that you have sown into our hearts and that sense of transcendence that you have given to us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us, help us to come to an understanding, that understanding that we could not come to on our own, but that you have given us by breaking into our world in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, that by his death and by his resurrection, we may find the longing of our hearts truly satisfied and fulfilled. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.